So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, man fans. Ollie Mann here with The Modern Man. Thank you so much for all your responses to last week's show. It really is a pleasure to know that there are so many of you out there that are as excited about us delivering the show to you as we are uh, about making it. Uh, And this week's middle feature is kind of unintentionally linked, actually, with last week's show with Kwaku Adeboli. It's not so much a personal story this time. It is a top headhunter giving insight about how she recruits high-flying execs. But, I don't know, perhaps all conversations about jobs these days touch on problematic workplace cultures and stress epidemic but uh, that is in there again um now since last week's episode a surprising amount of you have also been in touch to say that you would like a crack on ollie peart's neuropriming headphones uh, this despite the fact you will recall that he did describe in detail the feeling of burning and anxiety that he'd had whilst wearing them for us uh, still you guys love a free thing uh, tony has been in touch to say ollie i'm very keen to try out the brain headphones uh, i have a learning difficulty and i find it hard to learn new languages however i'm going to the olympic opening ceremony in japan in 2020 and i'd love to be able to speak japanese fluent by then. Um, That is a noble cause, Tony, but we would have to wait another two years for the payoff to see whether they worked in your case. Uh, Colin's been in touch as well. He says, Ollie, I am in a prime position to test out these headphones. Across the next six weeks, I'm changing career, learning new software. So I have a very controlled schedule, providing a controlled environment. I also have the challenge of writing poetry, painting, as well as training for an Ironman and doing some Wim Hof cold water exposure. God, makes you realise he's listening to this show, doesn't it? Uh, Katie and Josh expressed an interest as well, but the winner, I guess, <laughs> of the neuropriming brain-frying headphones is Peter... Uh, who tweeted to say, my brother is autistic and his fine motor skills aren't great. It sounds like maybe these might be able to help. Well, I have no idea if they will, Peter. But anyway, some weird freaky headphones are on their way to you. And uh, I abstain myself from any future responsibility for that. Uh, Right, before we get going with the show, big thanks to this week's sponsor, Harry's. Now, you'll recall I explained last week, I have stubble. I use an electric trimmer. So I had to task my father-in-law, John to test Harry's razors on our behalf. Uh, To give you some context on John, he's in his mid-60s, but looks a cool 55, and in his spare time he listens to six music, performs in amateur panto, and enjoys alternative walks of London. He has sent me the following text. In over 40 years of shaving, I can honestly say, Harry's has given me the closest, smoothest, and most comfortable shave ever. This is really what he wrote. 
A well-constructed razor and the smoothest shaving gel have made me a genuine enthusiast for their products. Let me tell you, man fans, that is the most enthusiastic I've heard John be since we bought him a strimmer for Christmas. He's a man who loves to cut. Uh, if you would like to get a Harry's trial set for yourself, you only need to shell out three ninety-five with our special offer. You get a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover delivered direct to your door. Visit harrys.com slash M-A-N-N. And hopefully by doing that, uh, you'll encourage them to support this podcast again as well. That is harrys.com slash man with two N's. And thanks to them. Uh, right, in this week's episode, you will... You'll learn how to freeze your leftover herbs. You'll learn why it might be a good thing to have a borderline psychopath as a CEO. And you'll learn the top three weird things people have put up their flumps. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. The truth is, as humans, we connect in our vulnerability. Age, stage, sexuality, doesn't matter. The psychology of finding the perfect candidate to run our biggest companies. The submissive person might be told to drink lots of water, hold it in, and then they're not allowed to pee. And Alex Fox gets mellow with the yellow in this week's Foxhole. But first, it's all the trends you need to know about for the week ahead. It's the zeitgeist with a man who once experienced an earthquake in Dorset. It's Ollie Pitt. I was sat at a desk and uh, I was just sort of leaning against it and the walls kind of wobbled like you'd get with a strong wind. Apart from my screen, my monitor moved. And I was like, what was that? And then I googled it. And people were like, oh, was there an earthquake? So then I actually reported the earthquake to the people on Twitter and said, I felt it in Weymouth. <laughs> Did you click the little label? I'm safe. Yeah, I filled out a form <laughs> on the uh, Geological Survey website. Anyway, what are the big trends this week? Gaming memories. Okay. Last Tuesday, 27th of uh, February, it was Pokemon Day. And it marked the day that the game was launched way back in 1996. Way back. And Mm. uh, the creators, Nintendo, they invited people on Twitter to share their most memorable moments of the game. And it demonstrated a turning point in the world of gaming. Gaming became more than just button bashing. It became an experience. We mean 22 years ago it did. Yeah. So computer games like before then. I'm going to hit a ball to that person, they're going to hit it back. I'm just going to bash buttons and see what happens in the arcade and lose my 50p or 20p or whatever it was at the time. And there were other games as well, but Pokemon came along and it reached a level of complexity with characters in it that people really bought into. It also seems to me like one of the first games where the merchandise sort of tripped over into the real world. There was the physical cards, weren't there? People wanted to collect the cards. Yeah, absolutely. It was the point where gaming started to take over. And this little social media exercise that Nintendo just undertook demonstrated how fond and warmly people looked at the game. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. The first time you actually catch Taurus from Pokemon Red slash Blue in Safari Zone after it ran away six million times. That means nothing to me, but literally (laughs) hundreds of people were really excited about that memory with the image that was attached to it. And here's another one. I'll never forget the feeling I got the first time I got into Tojo and realised I could go back to Kanto in Pokemon Gold. And then a, a slightly more recent one. Bought Pokemon Diamond for the DS in April 2007 when I was eight years old. It was the first Pokemon game I could play with friends. I still remember the team I first beat the Elite Four with. I have 400 plus hours put into it and it's the only game that I haven't restarted. 
I mean, the shocking thing to me, obviously, is that we're quoting anyone who was eight years old in 2007, <laughs> which is substantially after I left university. But yeah, okay, I see the point. There is, um, you know, nostalgia in these things. What I find interesting about it is the extent to which Nintendo and companies like that actually get on board with propagating that nostalgia because they're actually supposed to be an innovative gaming company now aren't they they're supposed to be coming up with characters that people will love in 25 years time and it seems to me like it's maybe tipped the balance here and and more people talk about nintendo and sega and atari and whatever purely in nostalgic terms for the characters that they created when we were kids and that's actually a problem isn't it yeah, well, I actually think that this is going to grow as a trend and not just with uh, sort of characters back from 1996. But I think that gaming's become a spectator sport. And I, I genuinely think in 20 years time, people will have pictures, framed pictures on their wall of key moments in a game, like a screen grab from a game that they remember where they beat some team in wherever it was. And it was just an amazing moment. What else have you got for us this week? We live... I bet this is WeWork doing a brand extension. It is WeWork doing a brand extension. WeWork is essentially a community workspace. So the idea is is that you can go in, rent a desk, and it's community focused. They charge the same as for an office, except it's open plan and it's got a Starbucks in it. That's basically that, it, isn't it. That's essentially it. And you're right. They are uh, extending their brand to actual real life living. Um, and what they've done <laughs> is they've built a bunch of apartments. I say a bunch, a couple. There's one in New York and there's one in Washington, D.C. But these apartment buildings come with additional amenities, such as a laundry room and mm-hmm. a yoga studio. And beds, presumably, if they expect people and to live And beds. There. So the, the apartments are sort of broken up into studios, one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom and four bedroom, obviously incrementally higher prices. I mean, it's ideal, isn't it, if uh, your startup is a sex chat line? <laughs> Very easy to work from home then. It's brilliant. Yeah, but you wouldn't want to go down to the communal espresso bar and forget what you're wearing. Uh, because that's what they've got. They've got espresso bars, trendy eateries, and they've got like happy hours because they've got all these oh, like, little... eateries. Yeah, yeah Honestly, e- that's not a word people use outside of press releases. Eateries is just a word you use when you've already said restaurant in the sentence and you don't want to repeat yourself. That is a word you will start using if you live in a we live. I love living here. We have such amazing eateries. <laughs> And the picture on the website sums it up perfectly. There's a guy, you can just see their hand holding a phone, and on the phone is an app, and the app is saying, come and join us for a screening of Jaws uh, down (laughs) on floor seven. It'll be great. What they're saying is that this, this is everything you could ever want from a house. It's got everything you could ever want here, including mates. And they've described it as a physical social network. Actually, in my experience of knowing people who do work in these communal open plan environments, they do seem, I mean, people are prepared to pay more to work in them because what happens is you get genuine kind of cross-pollination between all the different businesses that inhabit it. So you might be a completely freelance, I mean, let's take us, for example, if you were a freelance audio producer or broadcaster and you've got, you know, you or maybe you and one partner that you work with, The idea is you working in the same open plan office as someone who makes t-shirts or whatever, you might not seemingly be competitors, so you can collaborate with each other when it comes to choosing who sells your advertising or where you buy your merchandise or whatever it is. And it does kind of make sense that if you're devoting your whole life to doing a startup, you might as well just embrace that fact and say, yeah, it is my whole life. I need to be in a campus, not just in an office. Yeah, sure. But do you want to play pool with them? It's time to update us on how you fared in your latest challenge to explore the world's trends firsthand. Uh Uh, Last week, Man Fan Ben 
tasked you with going plastic free for a week. Ollie Pitt, how's it been going for you? I got up. I went to go and turn the light on. The light switch is made from plastic. You made it very clear <laughs> that I can't use any plastic. So I went downstairs. That was fine. I've got a light downstairs on an automatic timer. The light's on. So I go into the kitchen. I have porridge for breakfast, Dolly. I open the cupboard door. I go and get the saucepan. The saucepan handle is plastic. I'm like, I'm still having my porridge. I'll count that one down as a failure. I close the cupboard. I realise that the knob on the cupboard door is plastic. Then I get the porridge out of the cupboard. It's in a cardboard box. Look inside the cardboard box. It's in a plastic bag. Go and get my milk out of the fridge. You can see where I'm going with this. Yeah, I can actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can predict the next 40 minutes of this podcast if we're not careful. The fridge is plastic. The cardboard carton, uh, the lid of that is plastic where the milk was in. There is so much plastic everywhere that I was overwhelmed by the prospect of having to cope with it in the way that you suggested. When people talk about going plastic free, what they kind of mean is don't use disposable plastic. So I suppose the the closest example from the ones you gave would be the container for the porridge inside the box. You know, choose a brand of porridge that doesn't pack the porridge within the box within plastic. Yeah. Because that's a single use and then you throw it away. Exactly. They don't tend to mean don't buy a fridge that has a plastic door because that has perhaps a 30-year life expectancy. But... It's a big fuck-off fridge. You can try and be virtuous and be plastic-free, but it's it's almost too big a task for any man to attempt. Uh, absolutely. Have you tried to go out there and choose the porridge that isn't in the plastic bag? So, I had a set plan. I had Sunday free, and I found out about a plastic-free supermarket in Totnes in Devon. Oh, right. And That's not too far from you, is it's it? It's not too far from me. It's about an hour and a half drive. Okay, <laughs> so environmentally, maybe not that great a sell. Not great. And I had to get in my car <laughs> with its plastic gear knob and its plastic dashboard. Yeah. But got to Tynmouth and thought, okay, well, just uh, just double check where it is. Closed. Closed on a Sunday. Oh, closed, on a Sunday. closed on a Sunday. You live in the West Country. Everything's closed on a Sunday. How did you not know that would be the case? I just, do you know what? I just didn't think. So as far as I got in my research was just visiting Tynmouth and then coming home again and using lots of fuel. Ben has put his finger on the pulse with posing this challenge to you because it's become quite newsy, this, hasn't it? Theresa May says she wants the supermarkets to have plastic-free aisles by 20, God knows what it was, but, you know, some year in the future. And wasn't there one of these plastic-free supermarkets open this week somewhere in Europe? Well, not entirely plastic-free, just a single aisle in the Netherlands uh, opened and they're basically offering it plastic-free. And I heard this on the radio as well and it further perpetuated my anger because there are alternatives out there. That This isn't just plastic-free in the sense that they've got different containers and you shovel it into a plastic bag and you've got to walk out with your hands full of rice. This was they'd actually designed a new type of biodegradable plastic or different plastics made from sort of like vegetables or plants, plant-based plastics, if you like. Oh. So, and, and that means that there are alternatives out there. What is the thing that your average Monman listener can do, though? Because they're not going to go to the Netherlands. They're probably not going to go to Tidmouth on a Sunday, whatever the hell it was. So, you know, I'm in Sainsbury's tomorrow. What can I do to be plastic-free? So I went into Tesco's the other day. And yeah, I've heard of it. What did I do? I forgot me bags, didn't I? But I found out that the bags that they offer, and you can ask for them, are biodegradable. You can ask for biodegradable plastic bags. I did not know that. Why don't they make more of a thing out of that? Yeah, they totally should. Time to set you a listener-submitted trend for this week, Ollie. Ollie Pitt, open the digital envelope. Oh, here goes. From Rebecca in London, and she says, I'd like Ollie to try his hand at matched betting. We're all doing it in the office where I work, and I've made £150 this year. So I'd oh. like to challenge Ollie to make as much money as he can in one week. It's risk-free. 
And with the word <laughs> betting, who is this? Who's Rebecca? She sounds like she's doing something illegal. What is matched betting? That's my task, uh, isn't it? It, I mean, yes, you have yes correctly identified that we will string entertainment out of you discovering what it is and then doing it. Yes, that's the format. Right. Um, but as much as I know, and I briefly Googled it before we passed it on, obviously, to see if this was an appropriate challenge, uh, as much as I know, essentially, uh-huh. I think, is taking the free bet that various different betting sites offer. So, you know, like Ladbrokes and William Hill and stuff, they offer you a free £10 bet. Yeah. It's taking that free £10 bet and betting on both sides of a gamble where there are only two options so you can't lose can't and then you take the lose. winnings you can't lose and then you take the winnings from that and invest that in more bets so you're never betting your own money that's the idea you can't I don't know how it works lose that is bollocks <laughs> is it bollocks is of course the uh, better name for this section of the show but uh, we're stuck with the zeitgeist we'll find out next week uh, ollie it's been a pleasure as ever thanks ollie risk free Hello, man fans. I'm Camilla, and I'm the Marketing and Communications Manager at Food Cycle. We're a charity that serves community meals across the country using surplus food. And these are my life hacks on how to waste less food. Number one, have a plan. I don't know about you, but if I go to the supermarket without a plan, I always buy too many things or duplicate items in my fridge. So firstly, check your fridge and cupboards beforehand, create a list and for extra brownie points, make a meal plan for the week. Decide what nights you'll be cooking dinner, how many you're cooking for and the ingredients you need to make these meals. If you're buying a whole head of broccoli or or cauliflower, for example, think about other meals you can make in the week to use up those ingredients or cook more than you need and take it to work as a tasty lunch. My second tip is, know the difference between the best before date and the used by date. Dates on food can be confusing and cause us to throw away a lot of food prematurely. The best before date appears on a lot of food in supermarkets, but this is only about the quality of the food, not whether it is safe to eat. It is likely fine to eat long after this date, it may just deteriorate in texture or flavour. The use by date is about safety, and you will often see this on food that goes off quickly, like meat or ready-prepared salads. One good tip for staying on top of this is to move any newer foods with longer date to the back of the fridge, and those with a shorter life to the front. This saves you from regularly finding a mushy bag of spinach stinking out the back of your fridge. My third tip is the freezer is your friend. Now, it may seem obvious, but the freezer really is a great tool for reducing your food waste. You can freeze pretty much anything up to its use-by date and defrost it in the fridge or the microwave. You can even freeze things like fresh herbs if you think they're about to go off. Put them into an ice cube holder with a little bit of water and they'll be ready to use whenever you want to. You can also freeze things in their portions, so chop up your vegetables and put them into the freezer in bags so you can throw them into the pan when you want them without any hassle. Those are my life hacks on how to waste less food. At Food Cycle, we're always looking for awesome people to join us as we collect, cook and serve surplus food into three-course community meals. You can find out more and sign up by going to our website. Visit foodcycle.org.uk. Now, how did you make it into your current job? Perhaps you began with an internship and worked your way up, Uh, Maybe you schmoozed your way in, or just possibly you actually applied for an advertised job role, you know, with a CV. Uh, I wouldn't know. 
my job is to sit here in my pants talking to you. But some people, big cheeses, they get headhunted. They work for one company, then a rival approaches and offers typically more money or certainly a more satisfying role, and they make the switch. And that's all thanks to someone else whose job is headhunter. Kathleen Saxton is a headhunter. She's founder of The Lighthouse Company, who do executive search for media and marketing companies like WPP, ITV and Snapchat. So obviously she's got a lot of contacts, but even she doesn't know everybody. So I wanted to know, actually, really, when you strip out all the bullshit, does she just spend a lot of time cold calling people? It is cold calling. We call it outbounding to be elegant. But um, <laughs> we send we send a particular email to them, which we hope is very charming as to why we're interested in them. We never just headhunt someone because we've happened upon them. We'd have definitely done a piece of research on them or we'd have certainly called a number of people to get a bit of a picture of them before we go after them. So we're very thorough. And so our approach is very personal and I think gives them the impression that we are not picking a name out of a hat. We have reason to contact them. And would you would you rather, if possible, use encrypted technology to contact that person? Would you always WhatsApp them if you can or is it always an email? We will do whatever we need to do. It can be a text, it can be an email, it can be a WhatsApp. We would never use LinkedIn or a formal platform. We'd always do it personally. And as you probably know, there are many pieces of technology these days that can find me someone's personal Gmail or Mm. Yahoo mail and we'll use that if we possibly can. Um, In the past there's been people that just don't respond to any of those things. I've sent them flowers, I've sent them books I've sent them poems whatever I need to do to get them them to engage with me. Yeah. To work? Yeah to work. So uh, how do they appear to their secretary? I have no idea. That's not of my concern. Well, literally, what does it say? You know, what does the note say? You're you're contacting, you know, David, and you put David. I'll send something cheeky, like, "What's it going to take for me to be able to, you know, get a cup of tea with you?" Okay. Yeah. Isn't there a risk that if a big bouquet of flowers makes it its way through the office, that everyone in the office, particularly nowadays in the in the world of open plan? knows that they're being courted like if, if they think it isn't romantic that that's what you're doing and that's dangerous well courted by a headhunter it's unlikely I think someone's going to pick that out from a bunch of flowers I think for us it's about how do you find a way to connect with someone if you've tried all other forms of method and you really want them but it's important not to call the switchboard and say hello I'm a headhunter can I speak to the boss we would absolutely never do something <laughs> like that it's always going to be one-on-one contact we would never ever call someone's work phone or professional phone or anything like that of course not And what's the ratio of people who respond positively to an approach? So our approach is actually, we've literally used occupational psychotherapists to help us devise that outbound email. So it has a lot of thought and NLP in it. We've really worked on this particular note that we use and we obviously personalise it. I mean, I know that's your secret source as a business, but can can you give us an an example of a word, for example, that works better than another word in that context? Something like, it has been remiss of us to have travelled nine years as Lighthouse without having ever spent time with you and we'd like to put that right. (laughs) Right. So we take the blame of it's been remiss of us that we haven't found you to date. Mm. So I think there's something, again, it's emotional, it's personal, um, it's a sense of, you know, we'll talk about we'd like to sit with you. The title of our outbound is Time With You. It's all about them. The language is all about, it's all about you. It's not about us. I think many headhunters blanket the market with automated emails and I think that's hugely offensive actually to anybody and particularly senior individuals. For us it's about them being very clear that we specifically want to talk to them and only them about that particular role so we have to make that known.
Except, of course, that's slightly disingenuous, isn't it? Because you're approaching three or four people for the same role, presumably. Otherwise, you're not doing your job. We're, we're, we're uh, contacting many people for that role, but there is a specific reason why we want them. It's not just that they've got the right title or the right DNA or the right blood group. It is because there is something about their work history that has led us to want to talk to them and to believe that they are someone who could be really good for this company that we're hiring for. How many people politely decline? In other words, say, actually, I'm happy with my current job. Oh, happy with my current job is 50% of the responses, but that's never a no for us because we always say, again, in the language of our note, it says we understand you're incredibly happy where you are right now. So even if it's just that we can be on each other's radar going forward, that would be fine. So we, 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 we address that straight out the gate. So let's still meet for a coffee. Absolutely. Even though you're not interested. Absolutely. That it doesn't matter if it's not about this role. We just like to get to know you and what your future ambitions are mm. so that we are aware of that. I mean, who's going to say no to that? Mm. Our outbound Who probably does say has no to that? not many. I've got to be honest with you. Our outbounding is very successful, so probably eighty-five percent of people will respond. Really, fifty um, percent of them will say yes straight out the gate. Don't forget, we have a reputation in our market as well, sure. so that's helpful now. But the other, you know, I don't know. Let's say thirty-five, forty percent that say I'm very happy in my role, and therefore maybe the timing's not right. We will always go back and say absolutely, fully understand and respect that our expectations are managed. But listen, let's meet anyway. And most of them say yes. Where do you meet? Normally here, so it's in confidence, so no one gets seen. But if I'm in a, you know, if I'm in the states or somebody wants to meet externally, then normally somewhere that feels quite elegant. I'll never meet in a cafe or a Nero's or a Pret or a. It just doesn't feel very on brand. We're doing very senior roles, so it'll be, you know, for a coffee at the Dorchester or something like that. What's the most you've spent on sort of not whining and dining, but getting someone into that position? To just, have that just to meet them for the first time. Yeah. Well, if I've had to send them flowers and a book and a number of emails, don't forget my time is also is a cost. Then yeah, probably several hundred pounds if I needed to. But have if, you had to fly out to someone? I've had to fly out to many people. So Germany, so the hotel the Netherlands, room, France, the plane. absolutely. Just to have a meeting. Just to have a meeting. But don't forget, some of these people. Even if are, they've said no already. Of course, because if some of these people are on a million pound package and they are at the top of their game, the least I can do to show respect for them is that I will do whatever I need to do to get. To them. Somebody may have all the right requisite skills for that particular role, but actually putting them into that particular culture in that particular company could be a complete disaster. Do you mean you root out assholes? Oh, we definitely root out ourselves. I mean, that's an absolute requisite. How do you do that? How because, do you could like? So, okay, so so if they just put an advert in, and someone applied who was inappropriate because yes. they've been a bully in a previous job, or they're known to be, I mean, let's look at the current climate, bit of a groper. You basically are trading on gossip there, aren't you, to ensure that person doesn't go through to the stage where they're going to be, you know, considered. Yeah, and I have to give them the right to respond. So I have to name my concern and see how they respond to it. So we'll do a a good amount of background checking on someone. So the days of written references are long gone. I will ring as many people as I want to unofficially and unofficially gather some information. I can then ask a set of questions that test that hypothesis or that data to see how the individual responds. I I mean, I'm fascinated how those conversations go. Well, let me give you an example. One of my favourite questions to ask someone is... When's the last time you felt professionally vulnerable? That doesn't tend to be a question that a CEO has prepared in advance. We've all got a brilliant professional mask. We're all quite good at a standard interview. We've all learned the question of what's your greatest weakness and all the nonsense that goes with that. But if you ask someone when's the last time you felt professionally vulnerable, 
their answer is very telling for me. So someone who's overly confident, probably arrogant, potentially narcissistic may say, never. A normal human being says, pretty much every day. Mm. So even the way that someone responds, I'm not even interested in the specific response, it's just the tone, the approach they take to response to an emotional question like that tells me a myriad of things about them. I mean, there's been a a trend in the last few years of analysing CEOs and group directors psychologically in the media, hasn't there? I'm Mm. thinking about the psychopath test and things like that. Of course. The conclusion that actually alpha males everywhere running companies are all a bit mad. You're trying to guard against that then? Not necessarily. I think you've got to think about the, if we talk about psychopaths in particular, and there's been some brilliant work done in that space, some of the best surgeons in the world are fundamentally psychopath or have psychopathic tendencies. They have to because they have to shut down the idea that they're working on a human body. Because if they were to consider that they're working on Susanna and her kidney in that moment, they may get overwrought with the emotion of what they're actually doing. So they have to have the ability to shut down the human nature of what they're doing in order to precisely deliver the surgical procedure that they need to do. So we have to understand the positives of some of these traits and borderline personalities and mood disorders and various things. There are points within those that can be useful. Mm. But fundamentally, back to the point of not hiring ourselves, yes, we have to be thinking about is this person going to generally be good for the culture and the progress of that company? And there are many measures as to why certain individuals would or wouldn't be good for them. And we have to work on what that looks like. So the perfect candidate ticks all the boxes on paper, but in reality, there's just something a bit off about them. You're not sure what it is. Mm. So I'll give you a really good example where I might be with someone, the way I always feel about it. And because again, given the fact I'm a therapist as well, I will often feel a lot about someone even though the rational may not be adding up to that and the way I often feel about it is it's like I'm undoing a lock in a kind of you know Pink Panther movie which is I'm trying to get the combination right to open the lock of that door and often I'm with someone and even towards the back end of the interview that there's something I can't quite untangle there's something that's not quite congruent about this individual and unless I can find what it is I'm not able to positively endorse them to my client so I'll keep feeling around for what is the thing that I'm noticing and in the end I may well name something that I'm feeling so I interviewed a guy just the other day and all that I was his his CV was perfect and his story all made sense but there was there was a curiosity in me about I've just got this funny hunch that he may be quite bad tempered with people I'd no nothing to substantiate it my felt sense so I asked him the direct question of you know fundamentally what are you like to work for on a bad day or when you experience failure what do you most treasure about that experience and he immediately opened up and told me a story about the fact that he feels very it feels very hard for him to be open with his team because he's actually gay and he didn't come out to his parents even though he's in his early 40s until about a year ago and so he has felt most of his life so far he hasn't felt able to be fully open in that area in particular not that it was you know particularly mattered about his sexuality at all but it was for him and so therefore he felt he has been used to hiding part of his personality and I was picking up on the sense that he was hiding something from me Mm. wasn't his sexuality but he's used to behaving in that way so he said he's only beginning now to experiment with being more open about who he just is as a human being rather than just a boss and that caused some of his team difficulty because they weren't quite sure who he was we've talked on this podcast before to individuals who have found the workplace environment of the 21st century too stressful and too 
hard. Like they felt they needed to project an image which wasn't even them to be able to compete. Stress, as the World Health Organization has said, is the epidemic of the 21st century. It is um, stress and anxiety is present, prevalent in most organisations that we work with, sadly. But fundamentally, I think it is about the culture and the leader of those organisations being responsible for how are you driving that team? What expectations are you putting on them? And are they reasonable? And actually, you know, we can all, we've looked at all the stats that say if you work more than an eight-hour day, you're no longer being productive. But if I look at the 500 CEOs that we interview every year, most of them will tell us that none of them take their full holiday allowance. Mm. They're all working at weekends on pitching or extracurricular activity. And they're telling you that because they think it's a selling point. Not, not always. Not ashamed of Not it. always it's a selling point. I think some of them are just being honest about the level of expectation that's put on them. And of course, it becomes the norm. I think we went through a phase five, ten years ago where this badge of busyness was something to be incredibly proud of. And of course, it's completely backfired on us because we're all absolutely exhausted and burnt out. So adrenal illnesses, all those kinds of things for women in particular are really coming up through the ranks. And you know what happens when you look at stats for men and women, for example, are that men, will, men are more likely to become addicted to some thing or other whether it's porn or alcohol or work or drugs of some description you know the PL's under pressure transformations happening so people are worried about losing their jobs because if they're not ai literate or vr literate or whatever it may be or programmatic literate they're concerned that they're not going to become relevant anymore there's a truth in that so people are masking their vulnerability around their craft skills and they're masking their mental health because they're concerned that any sign of weakness means they could lose their job when you meet people at a high executive level that are happy, why are they happy? There's two things that are quite common for them. One is they tend to have a perceived happy home life. There is something stable in their life somewhere, either their parental relationship or the relationship with their partner. And if they have children, children, or they have a sense of breadth of family, whether that that family may be friends, doesn't have to be blood family, but they have something in their social makeup that allows them to be authentic and feel steady. So there's an anchoring somewhere in their life that's going on that means that work isn't everything, even if they're spending a lot of time at work. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that they've somehow connected to their inner self. They are connected to who they really are or were always meant to be. They're not playing out of position. And I think our masking means that we play out of position too much for too long. And that's where we get contorted. And that then makes the whole thing tumble. So somehow they've managed to reach a place of authenticity within themselves, which means they're sort of in flow most of the time that makes the stress and anxiety more manageable and they've got somewhere to go home to which allows them to go off duty and what proportion would you say of the people that you meet are happy if i said a third i would be slightly optimistic that's a bit of a crisis isn't it it really is a crisis we have a huge crisis it's happening around we're a the rich world country you know yeah. we're a country that is supposed to be an example yes but do we value the real richness you know do we value it unfortunately in material wealth or status we've got status anxiety left right and center you know we worry about how we're being perceived the real richness is in friends and love and a sense of well-being and being connected with our minds and our body that's real richness but do we value that you know some of the indian cultures for example really value that and have i think sometimes particularly in the uk i think we miss the point a bit 
And if you're listening to this and you're not a CEO, yeah. you're not about to get headhunted, but you want to be, maybe not by someone like you, but someone who's a rung beneath you on this yeah. kind of ladder... How do you get headhunted? It's all about profile, which sounds really superficial, I understand, but it isn't because actually you need to get spotted, you need to get noticed. I do a lot of stuff for Speakers for Schools, the government scheme over here, talking to 16, 17-year-olds about how to get chosen for a Saturday job or an internship or whatever it may be. You, you know, we, We're trying to get chosen at some point in life. And um, it is about what is it that differentiates you in the end um, and actually, sometimes it's even about how colourful and honest you are in your hobbies. You know, if somebody puts reading and cooking and going to the cinema, and I pretty much want to shoot myself, I'm not into it. Everybody says that. Tell me something about you that is interesting or funny or unusual, because then it gives me a flavour as to who you really are. One only feels truly satisfied when eating a margarita pizza. Yes. That's a good thing to put Abs- on your CV. Absolutely. Or someone says, you know... I've become the Finchley member of the, you know, litter, what's it, because I absolutely cannot stand it when I see something funny but necessary in the sense of that really activates them. Mm. So I think, um, you know, I'm I'm interested in someone's social media profile. Don't forget, I don't just have a paper CV anymore. I mean, that's table stakes. I'm going to go on YouTube and I'm going to see if I can see you speaking at something or can I see a video of something or can I see what you're doing on Instagram or can I see... So I'm going to be looking at what else I can find out about you. You may want to be 100% private, and if you are, I respect that, but it doesn't help me. You know, it's the Velcro effect. I need something that sticks to something. What can I find out about you? You can go too far the other way, though, can't you? And some people have probably found this episode of this podcast because they're the kind of people that look for this sort of information Mm. online. There's a lot of self-help gurus out there saying how to boost your profile using social media. You know, you can look like just this machine. You can look like just not a real person at all by doing all that. And there are people in our industry that most certainly do too much of it and it feels forced it feels forced you know you feel that actually they're they're only showing only the professional side of them and not the personal or only the personal not the professional or you feel that actually the communication is so avid that you wonder what they're doing in their day job Mm. all day long so it's getting the balance (laughs) right in the end it comes back to the same thing which is about authenticity isn't Mm. it that you're just being honest about the fact that nothing's perfect I quite like it when someone will share a story of something that was a complete disaster. Because the truth is, as humans, we connect in our vulnerability. Age, stage, sexuality, it doesn't matter. We connect in our vulnerability. So when someone tells you something about themselves that went wrong or wasn't ideal or was embarrassing or shaming or whatever, we are more inclined to offer a piece of ourselves in the same vein and suddenly we've connected. If everything's Peter Perfect... It's a bit impenetrable. I often find on this show, actually, some of my best interviews, I think, are probably the ones where clearly I don't quite know what to say because someone's just said something to me that I don't know how to respond. You know, I've not processed that information before. Of course. Because people listening, that's exactly how you respond at home. Of course it is. That's how we are in life. We have to allow ourselves to have permission to not know. That if we provide this sort of, again, this mask of knowing everything, how do we ever open ourselves up to growing? We can't grow if we feel that we know it all or that we have it all or that we pretend that we do. Okay, so we've talked a lot about kind of current trends and how things are now. 
Where do you think the world of work is going? What's What would this conversation look like if we were having it in 10 years' time? I think it's going to be almost five years' time rather than 10 years' time because I think the changes are that are happening now for how the workplace looks and feels is gathering great momentum. I think in the olden days, you would go to plurality when you were looking at um, doing non-exec directorships or chairmanships in the latter part of your career. Actually, it's the millennials that are interested in not doing one full-time job, but potentially doing two, maybe three. So they may do a three-day week at one company and a one day at another and half a day at another because they have multiple interests. You know, this this matching of um, art and science is really coming in. You've got someone mm. that might be a great programmer but they're also someone who really loves woodwork so they want to go and make cabinets one day a week and they want to go and be in, in tech at spotify for three days a week so did you headhunt daniel day lewis i didn't that what you're telling i us? didn't but i so wish i had can you imagine how, how that would be um, but it, it is about people wanting to be recognized for having multiple interests and skills and what do we do about that and i think you know the, the generation that's coming up and through are beginning to define how they wish to work and I think as employers we have to move and manoeuvre ourselves around that again in the olden days it was the female leaders that were asking for four day weeks or three and a half day weeks it's absolutely becoming rightly so into the male domain now where we're having you know senior male figures saying to me I need to pick my kids up from school four days a week and that's part of my contract and I love that because it's it's equalizing all of this sort of sexism that goes on around childcare and all of those kinds of pieces as well. You've got businesses like Twitter, Spotify offering um, unlimited holiday. And what's very interesting is how people handle that when they have that. You've got Facebook offering, you know, to freeze your eggs. I'm not sure where I sit with that. But what we do talk about also is culture, not capture. There's a lot of companies offering free doctors, dentists, nurses, canteens, gym on site. But we're beginning to get a bit wise to all they're doing is keeping us at work Mm. for longer. So we're starting to realize that whilst it's helpful and handy, is there some level of undercurrent in that as well that we need to be mindful of? The other thing I would say is that the altruism is coming through a bit. So people want to go and work for companies that they do believe in. And if it can't be their full-time job, they're interested in working for NGOs and those kinds of organisations. That's coming through. And the final piece, which I've got to mention, is mental health. I think, you know, people provide Booper membership and they provide gym membership. But what are you doing for the 50% of your being, which is in your mind, to be less scared about addressing what we need to do to be mentally fit to do some of these jobs? Mental um, health for staders being in organisations there's a creative agency called Karmarama that's just instructed 16 of them to live in the organisation to recognise when someone could be in trouble or could be struggling and be able to signpost them to get help with that what do they do do you think on that a recurrent trope that comes up on this show is people talk about the anxiety that's caused by us always being connected online that it's an incredible thing to have the technology to be flexible and agile and to be able to work on the beach. But actually, that means you never relax on the fucking beach. (laughs) You you never switch off. No, we all want to be connected and we all like the fact that we're global. But actually, if we're global, then somebody's always at work. So we've always got emails coming in. We always feel that necessity to respond. Do you think that this period, let's say since the invention of the iPhone 10 years ago up to now, might actually be a blip where our generation because there was no understanding of the dangers of it, just chucked themselves in like people who had just discovered cigarettes and were smoking 60 a day to this world where you were online all the time and being online all the time. And actually in the future, that will be seen as a mad period. 
I absolutely think so and I truly hope so because as we can see from the stats we cannot continue like this as a society we are killing ourselves by being always on we're killing ourselves by comparing ourselves to these sort of manufactured lives that we see on other people's social media and our sense of inadequacy which is completely false and at the same time certainly for younger generations we are connecting only digitally and so being able to just talk to someone in the street or even smile at someone on the bus is starting to be seen as rather odd when actually we're just not connecting as human beings I think there will be a massive move back to being more human with each other and bringing the kindness and compassion to each other rather than this horrible digital judgmental level that we're currently living in right now Kathleen Saxton find out more about her organization at thelighthousecompany.com a record of the week and Alex Fox are up next after this. Now, man fans, there are a lot of podcasts out there for you to get your ears around, and I should know I present a lot of them. And there are also a lot of football podcasts, and although the world's favourite sport has completely passed me by, I know that there are lots of you who listen to The Modern Man who care deeply about groups of 11 tattooed squillionaires kicking a ball around for 90 minutes. If so, you've probably heard of the Totally Football Show. But did you know that the people who put that podcast together have also got a show that focuses purely on life outside of the Premier League. It's imaginatively titled The Totally Football League Show, and it is the place to go for news on the 72 clubs who aren't in the top division. Teams like Sheffield Wednesday, Fleetwood Town and Doncaster. Sexy. There are reports from games up and down the country, expert guests, club histories, anthemic music, everything you could possibly want from a football show. Fancy it? Search for it. The Totally Football League Show. Wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for the only part of the Fox Empire Disney were not interested in buying. It's Alex Fox and the Foxhole. Welcome to the squelch zone, Ollie. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Yes. Uh, what's up with you this week? I'm feeling very highly esteemed oh, right. because uh, not long ago I was invited to speak at the prestigious Royal Institution in the same room where Faraday lectured to his scientific counterparts. And what were you talking about in this great room? Containers. I'm sure Faraday would have been proud. <laughs> what is a container? Uh, it, it's uh, when people use their vagina as a container and put things into it. I basically spoke about the weirdest things people have ever put up their flumps. Okay, give us a top three. Cervical piercings. People putting piercings through their cervix. Uh, not highly recommended by doctors, I must say. In at two? Mud and sand, especially to dry out their vaginal area, because in certain parts of Africa it's considered more pleasing to the man to have additional friction caused by soil. Well, that is absolutely fascinating. Mud flaps. And this week's highest new entry? (laughs) HSBV, as I like to call it, or a woman who presented to her gynaecologist with a terrible case of BV, a.k.a. bacterial vaginosis, a a vaginal uh, bacterial problem, as uh, as the name suggests. Caused by? Uh, Her 
putting about one and a half grand in rolled up banknotes <gasps> into her into her into her badge and using it a bit like HSBC. Uh, why aren't we interviewing that person as a little feature? <laughs> That's an amazing story. She was an elderly lady. Even who... better. I want to see the film and everything. <laughs> Not sure you do want to see the film. I'm sure I she do. She was coated in a fine film of pustulous excretions, unfortunately. She decided that she didn't trust the banks. So instead she was uh, you know rolling her cash I up. I trust what I know. <laughs> cash in the gash. Cash in the attic, even. <laughs> but even worse, she no, decided... cash in the gash is an even better BBC One daytime proposition. Seriously. Uh, she decided <laughs> that she wasn't going to remove this money from herself before going shopping because she feared that someone might steal it from her. So uh, she'd gone to do her big shop and every time she needed to pay for something, she was just nipping into the loos, taking the notes out, handing them over and then popping them back in. And the repeated motion of... Uh, taking this money in and out of herself and and all the bacterial transfer from her fingers and unfortunately minor paper cuts caused by the notes led to an unfortunate downstairs sitch if ever there was a need for contactless technology it's time for our listener question uh, as ever brought to you by our dear dear sexy friends at mycondom.com who stock all manner of wonderful and sometimes quite obscure, difficult to find condoms, including the EXS Extreme 3-in-1 condom. You're all going to have to explain that. It doesn't mean that you can put three penises inside it at once. I'm no longer interested. (laughs) Uh, It means that it's got pronounced ribs and dots, giving it that texture which lots of people find very stimulating. And it's also flared at the head. It's a bit baggier at the front of it, which means that people with particularly bulbous glands or the or sometimes uncircumcised folks find that a bit more comfy with which we go on to the question it's from a gentleman who has chosen to remain anonymous and says alex i was talking to the lads in work over a tea break one day and naturally the conversation turned to sex I've, by the way, never had that experience. Maybe I've just worked in the wrong places. You're just or, not or working right with places. enough lads, Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the issue. Uh, one of them was telling us about a girl he started seeing who was, quote, quite dirty in the bedroom. He told us that she had once asked if she could piss on him, to which he politely declined. Part of me is very curious about this, but I wanted to know, Alex, whether it is safe and pleasurable. I don't, have we ever done water sports? I don't know if we've ever done it. Not us two personally. No, no I'd I think remember I that. Remember, yeah. <laughs> well, you might be referring to jet skiing, but no, we've not done that no, either. We've once met for a coffee in Pratt. <laughs> but anyway, the point is, I'm not sure whether we've discussed on the show before water sports. No, I don't know whether we I can't have. Can't remember if we which have. Is, which is kind of surprising because um, we've done everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Well, water sports, also called golden showers, or the technical term for a urine fetish, is actually urolagnia. I think I'm saying that right. It's more popular than you might think. Give us the stats. Well, do you remember Channel 4 did that big survey called the Great British Sex Survey? I think it was last Vaguely, year. Vaguely, yes. Yeah, yeah. They turned it into a big TV series. Uh, it, it came out in the top ten. More people are into piss than you think. I wonder if that included, you know, watching people wee rather than being weed on. Being it, weed on seems to me more niche. Or it might have been watching other people pee on each other in porn and as we've discussed before often what people get off on when they're pressing play on a video isn't the same thing that they get off on when they're playing with themselves or others Uh, either way though lots of people thinking about it lots of people intrigued by it and plenty of people trying it so our listener here asks 
Is it pleasurable? Well, yes, it can be for lots of people and for lots of reasons. First of all, it's quite a taboo thing, pee, and therefore fascinates a lot of folk. Um, if you're into being humiliated, if you're, we often, I often hear from people who have very powerful jobs in the day where they've got a lot of responsibility. In their nighttime activities, they want to completely escape from that. They like being belittled. They like being humiliated. Having someone wee on you uh, can feel like quite a humiliating experience another reason that people can be into piss play is that often our formative early experiences of seeing other people's genitals of any gender are when someone's peeing and that can have a lasting impact upon being intrigued by Mm. that it's also there's that naughty thing isn't there for for the gentleman of of spying the cubicle next to you and what the other bloke is packing. You know, I think immediately you're in territory there where, I'm talking about when you're 12, 13 years old here and exploring the sexual world around you, where that has a frisson. You're not supposed to do that. Well, there's a lot of emotion attached to that, isn't there? There's fear of, do I measure up? There's intrigue of, all that person's different to me. There's, there's, There's a lot of very, very strong feelings and it's not too much of a stretch of the imagination to, to, to see how that could become sexualized for people. Other reasons why people can be into pee, it can be a bizarrely close thing to do. It's something that you often don't, well, you pretty much don't go to the loo with other people as an adult. So sharing that with a partner can actually be a, perhaps bizarrely, but it can be a bonding experience. You're showing that person something that they wouldn't usually see. I mean, all of these things you're mentioning as pleasurable, if I may say, are emotional or intellectual. Oh, there are physical reasons too. There are some physical reasons. What about having smelly, warm piss dripped on you is pleasurable? (laughs) Well, lots of people who are into S&M use piss play as part of that. So uh, the submissive person might be told to drink lots of water, hold it in, and then they're not allowed to pee until they're uh, given permission to do so. So. It might be pain. That's the emotion aspect of it. But then there's also the pain of holding that wee and the great relief that comes when you're finally allowed to release it. If you've also been doing sexual play, then you may actually wee at the same time as orgasm, which can enhance that feeling. That's, peak. oh God. I mean... If you're, that's easier if you're a woman, by the way. I was going to say, like, actually, it's, it's two separate tracks, isn't it? It goes one way or the other. Um, Usually the bladder is shut off when exactly. a guy has an, an erection so that he doesn't accidentally pee in someone when he's supposed to be spunking and in them. Sometimes, you know, going for a wee straight after ejaculation actually hurts. Oh, I didn't the, know that. The idea of those things being deliberately combined is... But then some, for some people, pleasure is very, very closely related to pain anyway. Yeah. So for some, playing with that pathway of sex and discomfort, if you will, is within a controlled circumstance can be really exciting. Okay. He also wants to know if it's safe. Fairly. Okay. We getting on your skin, provided that you have healthy skin and no open wounds. Provided you're waterproof. <laughs> provided that you are watertight. Yeah. yeah isn't going to do you much harm. Uh, in terms of um, diseases, viruses, things like that, there's no real risk of HIV transmission. Um, piss can carry very small traces of blood only if someone has a kidney or a, a urinary tract infection. So there's a very, very slight risk of bloodborne diseases being present in urine. But we're talking minuscule, really. It's generally pretty safe. Um, So if you're weeing just on healthy, unbroken skin, it's not a problem. I imagine this fetish escalates quickly to 
peeing into someone's bottom or into someone's vagina or into someone's mouth. And that, I mean, it isn't designed to do that, is it? It's designed when to be pee, a waste product. Yeah, when pee goes in people yeah. rather than on them, or if it enters your, your body through, uh, through a mucosal membrane like the eye, then it's potentially slightly more risky. I must contextualise, though, and say, in the grand scheme of sex acts, this isn't as risky as many other things that people are doing very, very commonly. But a lot of folk are into drinking wee. Drinking your own pee, generally pretty safe. It's come out of you. You're not putting anything back into you that isn't already present. There are bacteria in the urinary tract and in the genital area that aren't uh, brilliant to introduce to other places sometimes, but it's not a major issue. However, if you're drinking somebody else's wee, if they're free of infections, you're generally okay. But it can carry things like herpes, gonorrhea, chlamydia. Uh, Also, if someone's taken drugs, prescription drugs or recreational drugs, traces of that drug can be present in their urine. Okay, so if our anonymous contributor is still interested in this... um exploratory side of his sexuality where where might he start i'd say in the shower the cleanup's easier if you decide that you don't like what's going on then all you need to do is turn on the jet stream and swoosh that right down the plug hole along with your sense of shame and mystification at what just happened and actually if you have any left over try putting it on your face my grandmother used to swear by that your gran covered her face in piss yeah she lived to 86 she had a great face (laughs) In my head, she looked like Marge from The Simpsons, like bright yellow. (laughs) No, she had exceptional skin. I I think she. You kissed your grandma's piss-covered face. I did, yeah. Not not piss-covered. You keep saying covered. I think, like, I don't know how it works. Did your grandma specify that she washed it off afterwards? Oh yes, I think she did. I think what she did. I don't know how she extracts it from herself. Whether she read in the bath and then just quickly put a bit on her face or what. But I think she just mixed it in with soap and water and stuff and a dab of it, and it was it was an old wives' tale. Anyway, worked for her. She had great skin revelations every week uh if you've got a question for alex for next week's show what should you do with it please tell me what obscure things <laughs> that your grand did to face head on over to modernman with two ends.co.uk and click on feedback you can give me your name or you can keep it entirely to yourself and whatever you want to experiment with this weekend you will find a toy or a lubricant or a protective device to assist you at mycondom.com and if you use the code foxhole f-o-x-h-o-l-e then you'll get a grand 15% off and with that we have very nearly reached the end of this edition of the modern man but there is just time to appoint a new manbassador it is Dale from Dusseldorf who says Ollie I've loved your various podcasts over the years and after listening to two episodes of the modern man back to back stuck in traffic I realised it was time to give something back so I've bought you four beers as I live in Germany I hope you use it for some lovely German beer prost to you lads and bottoms up Miss Fox uh, cheers Dale and uh, I am delighted to pronounce you manbassador for Dusseldorf our theme is by Django Django and here comes our record of the week it's from new band Another Sky who appear to be making music purpose built for nighttime listening their latest is called Forget Yourself and it's out now on Fiction Records Sweet Dreams I've been Ollie Mann the producer Matt Hill and we'll see you next Tuesday
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.